The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. For our last programme of 2010, we're giving you our greatest hits. We're looking back at some of our best interviews with the year's most interesting thinkers from the world of business and economics. The past 12 months has once again seen huge financial upheaval. Forget about partridges and pear trees. We've had three UK budgets, two European sovereign debt crises and an environmental disaster that's wiped billions off the value of BP. During this time, it's fair to say that the old order's taken a bit of a battering. Economists have been examining how we ended up in such a serious financial mess, how to get out of it, and how to prevent it happening all over again. According to the Australian academic John Quiggan, some of the biggest ideas in economics now resemble big screen zombies. The people it kills get up and kill. They must be destroyed on sight. When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Well, John Quiggan came in earlier and explained the thinking behind his new book, Zombie Economics. A zombie idea is one that's lost its empirical support, lost any basis for believing it, but nonetheless is still there as part of our mental equipment, still keeps on clawing its way out and uh, influencing things like public policy. And you're particularly interested in zombie ideas in, in the world of economic policy making. Give me an example. Well, the big one right at the moment is the efficient markets hypothesis, more, more precisely the efficient financial markets hypothesis. And that really was the ruling idea that drove most of the policy reforms and policy ideas of uh, the 30 years from the mid-1970s up to the global financial crisis. And it really says that uh, you can't beat the markets in terms of getting the best possible estimate of what, uh, what something's worth. So if the market says that Irish house prices... Uh, the Irish houses are worth a great deal of money, that must be right and you shouldn't second-guess them. Now, that idea clearly, on an irrational basis, is and ought to be dead, but yet we see that the same financial markets are back in the saddle uh, telling governments what they should and shouldn't be doing in the light of fixing up the crisis that the banks and financial institutions themselves have made. So tell me why it's wrong and tell me why it's still knocking around. The wrongness is simply that it essentially asserts you can't have such a thing as a bubble. And I think the empirical evidence is very plain that you can, that uh, markets can way overvalue things, can be subject to uh, panics and manias, so-called Minsky moments, when all the euphoria that's been building up suddenly evaporates and we see these huge crashes. So that's the uh, empirical evidence against it. So the really, the really dumb version of the efficient markets hypothesis is that you couldn't ever have such things as a fiver left lying around on the street because someone would always pick it up. And yet we do come across fivers left around on the street. Uh, yeah, there's an economist joke of precisely that version of it. And, and we do see that, uh, indeed, that you can, you, markets can get things badly wrong. People can see it, but they can stay wrong long enough to wipe out even determined speculators. There were people who bet very heavily against the dot-com boom in the late 90s, uh, lost their money. Of course, uh, their problem was to be prematurely right. So why is it still knocking around? How is it still knocking around? Well, I think uh, we only have to see uh, the respect that's being paid to the ratings agencies over the, the sovereign debt crisis, the same ratings agencies that totally mispriced the assets that created the financial crisis in the US, uh, to see that it is still around very much so. We only need, indeed, to see the kinds of talk that goes on about uh, how the markets will react to this and react to that, to see that uh, they're being treated as if they're very good judges of what's good public policy and so forth, despite the fact that 
the governments they're passing judgment on are, are in trouble, essentially, because they bailed out those very financial markets. If these ideas are so palpably wrong, then how come policymakers and academics are still paying heed to them? Well, I think there's a bunch of things going on here. One is that, um, taken as a package, uh, the set of ideas I'm talking about uh, serve the interests of rich and powerful people, and ideas that serve the interests of rich and powerful people are never going to go away. Uh, talk about trickle-down economics, that's a pejorative, of course, but the idea that if we only let the rich keep rich and stay rich, that will be for the good of everybody. You can find in Aesop's fables, you can find it... Uh, uh, you can find in the fables that are told today. It's an idea that's not going to go away as long as there are rich people who can uh, find people to sing their praises, which I think will be a long time. So that's one thing. In the academic environment, people build academic careers and ideas. You can't uh, rapidly change course. If you're working on a paper on the efficient financial markets hypothesis, that might take four or five years. If you simply say, well, I don't believe it, I'm going to abandon my work and go and do something else. People do occasionally do that, but enough don't that we see you know, hundreds of articles on applying the efficient uh, market hypothesis coming out you know, this year, last year, uh, into the future. And the third problem, which I discuss a bit in my book, is, is that unlike the situation that arose in the Depression with Keynesianism, with the breakdown of Keynesianism in the 1970s where monetarism was around to replace it, we don't have um, a ready-made set of ideas to, uh, uh, to say, well, that was wrong, this is what we need to do. And so uh, people have to have some kind of way of looking at the world, even when it's palpably wrong they stick with the one they know if they can't be presented with a better one. The point is we've got institutions, whether they be the IMF or the OECD or university faculties, that are actually dedicated to advancing the cause of what you call zombie economics. And it takes a long time to change those institutions. It, it does take a long time and, and there's no doubt that um, there's no doubt that interests are powerful and and we see this with the success of the uh, of the success of the financial system in certainly beating back most of the first round of of threats to their existence, already restoring their profits back to paying out large bonuses and, and, and so forth. Nonetheless, I, I guess uh, I'll, I'll talk my book and say you know, ideas that the fact that they're now having to rely, uh, certainly in the US, on political movements motivated largely by uh, distrust and hatred of Wall Street, even though they're actually serving Wall Street's interests, I think uh, I think is going to, uh, going to create... Uh, difficulties for them in the future. I think that the absence of any sort of supporting framework of ideas, an edifice can look very powerful even when it's lost that kind of support. I think if you looked at the Soviet Union a few years before its collapse, the ideas had clearly rotted away. No one any longer believed in any of the supporting ideas, but of course the class interests that uh, benefited from the continuation of the existing system uh, remain very powerful. But uh, my view is that if you don't have those uh, supporting ideas, if you don't have, uh, to some extent at least, the acquiescence of the of the public at large in believing that uh, that you understand what you're doing and are running the show for the benefit of everybody, institutions that look very powerful can collapse and disappear very fast. John Quiggan there, and his new book, Zombie Economics, is out now from Princeton University Press. We had another zombie hunt on the podcast this year, Cambridge economist Harjun Chang. His latest book, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, is probably one of the best books on what's gone wrong in the crisis. But while he was happy to put free market fundamentalism to the sword, Harjun was keen to say that he was no Marxist. Well, Marx actually had a lot of uh, interesting things to say about uh, capitalism. I mean, I don't 
have much time for his uh, utopian vision of uh, socialism. But actually, if you read uh, Marx, you will see that he actually understood capitalism better than many of his uh, contemporary free market economists. Uh, for example, when he was at, uh, writing, a lot of uh, free market economists were against things like limited liability because they thought that it would create moral hazard and ruin capitalism. Marx said, no, this is actually capitalist production at the high stage. Yeah? This will take capitalism to another plane. Yeah? And so on. So actually, there are lots of interesting insights that you can learn from Marx. Yeah, but you're, you're not a Marxist. No, what, no. I'm what, not, would, what do you want to replace these free market myths with? Yeah, I'm not uh, calling for some kind of uh, Marxist uh, revolution. I, uh, what I am calling for, if you read the book, you will find out, is basically restoring balance or rather balances in our economy. For example, the, the balance between market and the state. I mean, both market and the state have important roles to play in our economic life. Unfortunately, the free market also said the government always, always is uh, the wrong. Government is part of the problem rather than solution. And therefore, the, we have uh, increased the domain of the market far too much. You know, we need to also restore balance between finance and real economy, if you like. You know, I mean, not only has uh, financial deregulation of the last three decades created this uh, massive amount of uh, complex uh, financial instruments that no one really understands, these days, uh, at least in countries like the United States and the UK, which are on the forefront of this uh, financial deregulation, a lot of uh, the flagship manufacturing companies had uh, turned themselves into finance, financial companies. For example, between 2001 and 2003, Ford, the automobile manufacturer, made all his profits in his uh, the financial division, Ford Finance. Yeah? So uh, we need to rein in the financial sector. I'm not uh, one of those people who say yeah, the financial sector is uh, the, something that we need to destroy, but we need to restore that balance. We also need to restore balance between manufacturing and services. Harjun Chang there and his book, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, is published by Penguin. Every so often, politicians promise a day of reckoning for the delinquent banks that cause this crisis. But it certainly didn't come this year. However, there has been some soul-searching, even on the free market side of the debate. One of the world's leading financial and conservative historians, Neil Ferguson, came in to tell us that there is much that current investment bankers could learn from one of the founding fathers of the industry, Sigmund Warburg. I think it's a wonderful way of, of seeing the 20th century. You go from his birth in 1902 to his death in 1982. You take in all the major crises, including, of course, the Great Depression, but also the great stagflation of the 1970s. I find that really, really interesting to write about. So I think this is a wonderful way for me to get back to my roots as a financial historian. It's a documents-driven book, piles of dusty letters. And, uh, and it's also a way of illuminating some of the key issues of our time. It's a very admiring biography. What does Warburg have that... Fred Goodwin doesn't. Well, I should be careful how I answer that. I think the most important difference between Warburg and today's bankers is that he had instilled in him from early childhood a very austere ethical worldview. His mother would say to him at, at night, as they were saying prayers, if you, if you can't think of at least three things you've done wrong in the course of today, at least three errors or omissions, then you're not thinking hard enough. 
So he was very self-critical and I think held to a very high moral standard by the way he'd been raised. But the other big difference that comes to mind is what he'd lived through. The generation of bankers who presided over financial disaster on both sides of the Atlantic had, on average, come into the business in 1982. Uh, and, uh, you know, they'd had 25 years and then they blew the world up. They had had no experience of the Depression. They'd certainly not experienced hyperinflation. I mean, Warburg had seen military defeat in 1918, hyperinflation in 1923, banking crisis in 1931 in the midst of the Great Depression, and the rise of Hitler. Then the outbreak of World War II. He'd seen enough to be quite a cautious man. Neil Ferguson there, and his book, High Financier, The Lives and Time of Sigmund Warburg, is out now. Well, this was the year that the banking crisis turned into a full-fledged sovereign debt crisis. Countries that had propped up their banking systems with massive loans and gone into a huge economic slump began to face threats from credit rating agencies looking nervously at their balance sheets. In one of the year's most influential books, called This Time It's Different, Carmen Reinhardt gathered data from banking crises dating back 800 years. She told us back in March that the US and the UK had a unique crisis on their hands. One thing that distinguishes the UK and the US from Japan, which has managed 200% public debt to GDP, is Japan as a whole still lends to the rest of the world. Both the UK and the US borrow from the rest of the world. Uh, so the scope for that kind of buildup in debts is, well, you know, Japan has 200 public debt percent of uh, public debt to GDP. That's just not a feasible option for, for Britain or for the US. So you're saying because Japan saved more and therefore lend out more of their own money to the rest of the world, they're slightly insulated, whereas because we haven't saved that much, and we, we rely upon the international That is precisely market. what I'm saying. Uh, I think going back to the Japanese example, even Japan, which lends to the rest of the world, was downgraded several times after its major financial crisis. And I think the UK and the US would be game uh, for downgrades and all that that entails. So, so the low interest rate environment that is being taken for granted would, would be challenged. And um, I think that is the more realistic scenario for the U.S. and U.K. in which you get unpleasant surprises in interest rates. And the placement of debt that we have taken for granted uh, becomes a shakier process. Carmen Reinhardt there. And her book, This Time It's Different, is co-authored with Ken Rogoff. So what will the new economics look like? A form of Keynesianism that brings an active state back into fashion? Or maybe economists will simply become more aware of their limits and move closer to other disciplines like psychology and philosophy. The Nobel Prize winning development economist Amartya Shen has been writing for decades about a conception of justice that applies in economics. I asked him why, himself aside, economists have largely stopped talking about justice and other issues in moral philosophy. Well, I don't think that's quite the problem. They do think about issues of justice. But, uh, you know, I think the real problem in economics has been that certain uh, modes of thinking uh, tend to get dominant. As we saw that recently from the economic crisis, the idea that the markets are self-correcting and basically cannot do wrong uh, had become very dominant. Not the part of everyone, but it was a dominant view. So similarly, I think that the idea of justice that got ingrained in economics is the utilitarian one. 
And then, then there was there were two main things. That was one side, utilitarian. But then there was the other side saying, well, all these interpersonal comparisons is nonsense, uh, and you couldn't do it, and therefore welfare economics, and, and which is the bit of economic that relates to justice, is simply not worth doing. And that is also there. So it's not so much that they don't think enough about it, that think enough about it to reject the subject. That's one side. And the others take the simple formulaic view of everyone has a utility, sum them up, maximize them, that's it. But it's not fair to say that economists don't do it. After all, the subject, the founder of the subject, Adam Smith was a professor of moral philosophy of Glasgow. And there have been important economists who have thought about uh, issues of justice, um, uh, possibly less common now than it used to be. I mean, John Stuart Mill was an economist. In a manner of speaking, Karl Marx was an economist too. <laughs> and certainly um, I can name a dozen others who have thought about justice and, and, and ethics, but less common now, certainly. I agree with that. The great Amartya Shen speaking to me earlier this year, and his book, The Idea of Justice, is published by Penguin. Well, that's it for this week and indeed for this year. We'll be back in 2011 with more interviews and all the Guardian and Observer's business and economics writers. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. Have a good holiday. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.